Revelation chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. The Bible says, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Kevin just read for us there the last promise in all of the Bible. Do you know how many promises there are in the Word of God? Promises in all the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about promises that a person makes to another person. I'm talking about a promise from God to man. Now, the answer actually, actually is probably no one fully agrees on what a promise is. But you would probably find rough estimates around 7,000 or 8,000 promises of God to man in the Bible. And this is the last one. I said last uh, Sunday evening, this focus that Jesus has at the end of the last book of the Bible is to make sure we know that he is coming quickly. He repeats it three different times. And last Sunday evening, we saw that the, the first of these seemed to be really focused at instruction. Just, I am coming. You need to know that. This is, this is a reality to you, and it needs to be relevant to your life. And this morning... We focused on the second of these, verse 12. And behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And we focused on the fact that this is part warning, part invitation, as he says in verse 17, whosoever will, scripture tells us, let him take the water of life freely. It is a challenge, it is a charge. I am coming quickly and my eternal destiny your eternal destiny, I should say, is in my hands. Well, tonight, we're going to look at the third of these reminders. Surely I come quickly. Verse 20, that is a promise. And what I want to talk about tonight is how the church signified here and represented by John responds to the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, surely I come quickly. And what is the first word out of the mouth of John? What is it? Amen. Amen. What does that mean? And then he says, even so, come Lord Jesus. The message tonight, the church's response to Christ's imminent return. The church's response to Christ's imminent return. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Three things I want to bring out tonight on the church's response to Christ's imminent return. The first thing is to affirm his coming. Affirm his coming. And this is just going to focus on that simple word, amen. Now, amen is a word that is, is, is all around our church culture. Virtually whenever we pray, we say, amen. And it would be common if you would come to one of our Wednesday evening prayer meetings, you would hear someone pray and they would end amen. And what would be the response of some in the congregation? Amen. 
And there's something biblical about this. You remember when we just finished our study on spiritual gifts recently in 1 Corinthians 14, one of the arguments that Paul uses against unregulated tongue speaking where there's no interpreter present is he says very simply, if you are giving thanks with the spirit that is in the, this idea of an unknown language, he says, then how shall he that hears in your prayer say amen at your giving of thanks? He doesn't understand what you're saying. Now, what is the assumption that is underlying that statement? That God's people, typically, when someone is giving thanks, what do they respond with? Amen. Amen. Because that's the entire point of our corporate worship. Our entire point of our corporate worship is when one person prays under the leading of the Holy Spirit. What's going on at our prayer meetings on Wednesday night? I hope that the Holy Spirit is leading is what's going on. So that when someone prays, it's because the Spirit of God is enabling them to do so. One person prays, and what is everyone else doing? They're not hopefully off in la-la land. They're not dreaming about what they're going to eat for dessert that night or what they have to do at their job tomorrow. They are silent, but they're praying with them. One person is leading the service by praying. The other people are engaging with them in spirit. And when the person is done praying, what does everyone else say? Amen. Why? Because they're saying, that's my prayer too. Let it stand. So be it. I agree. Now, we know this use of amen. But do you know what this word actually stands for in the Bible? Here's what one commentator has said. The word amen is a most remarkable word. It was transliterated directly from the Hebrew into the Greek of the New Testament. Do you know amen is a Hebrew word? Amen. And because it was such a component of God's people in the Old Testament, it was taken directly from the Hebrew and made a Greek word. Amen. And so it appears all over our New Testament. But not only that, this word amen has not only gone from the Hebrew to the Greek, it has gone from the Latin and it has gone into... English. Amen. In other words, this commentator says, in, in many other languages, so that it is practically a universal word. Listen to this. It has been called the best known word in human speech. The best known word in human speech is amen. Now we need to understand what this word actually is. The word is directly related, this commentator says, in fact, almost identical to the Hebrew word for believe or faithful. The, the idea underlying it is something firm, fixed, and stable, something you can believe in. Now, in the Old Testament, this word had sometimes a very sobering sense you remember that uh, there was a, a particular chapter, Deuteronomy 27, in which God's people were instructed to be read curses. And you recall that in this chapter, over and over again, the leader would say, cursed be this, cursed be this, cursed be this action, cursed be this action. And what would God's people have to respond after every curse? 
Amen. What are they saying? That's, that's true. That's solid. That is to be, be, be believed. That is sure or truly. It's also true in a devotional sense. In Psalm, for example, in the Psalms, you see these repeated amens. Listen to Psalm 41, 13. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting and to everlasting. Amen and amen. That's not a warning. That's not a kind of sobering kind of illustration. That is saying, God, yes, blessings be to you. Amen and amen. Let it be. Let it be faithful. But then we go to the New Testament. And actually, I didn't know this until I studied for this message. One of the most, to me, mark, uh, memorable words that Jesus uses over and over again, in fact, he often uses it repeatedly, is the word verily. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. Do you know that word verily is this word amen? Jesus literally says in the Greek, amen and Amen. A man must be born again if he is to see the kingdom of God. That's, that's the word. Actually, in our Gospels, this word is mostly used, translated, verily. This, is used, this word is used, amen. The same Greek word that is used here is used about 150 times in our New Testament. About 100 of the times it means verily. And about 50 of the times it's translated, amen. It's the same idea. Verily is surely. This is firm. You can believe on it. Amen. This is sure. This is firm. You can believe in it. So what's the meaning of this word, amen? It is to suggest something that is true. Now, I say this because when Jesus tells us, I am coming quickly, the immediate response from, from John is, amen. Let it be firm. It is firm. It is faithful. It is to be believed. Now, I pause here because I wonder if this is our response to the coming of Christ or the first response when we hear of the coming of Christ. When we hear that Jesus is going to come again, is our first response, that's true. As I said this morning, sometimes we can focus, when we focus on the eternal state and the blessings to come, we again can, can almost place it in the category of fiction. Not that we'd ever say that, but it feels like it because all we know is what's here on earth. And we've lived lives in which we haven't seen Jesus coming down in the clouds. And so the thought that he could come tonight or he could come to call us home tomorrow, we say, all right, I, I believe that intellectually but it's not of reality. This passage tells us, no, the, the Christian's response, the church's response to Christ's imminent return is to lay down a fixed foundation and say, yes, that is true. That can be trusted. That is something that I am putting down the roots of my belief in. We affirm his coming. You know, we can see this in the way that we live our lives. We can see the extent to which we are affirming his coming with a decisive amen by the extent to which we are laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven or we are laying up for ourselves treasures on earth. We can 
tell the extent to which we are affirming his coming with this decisive amen that this is to be believed, this is faithful by the extent for which we are watching and waiting for his return, as Jesus said. Those of us who treat it as an area of intellectual belief, but not truly of heart belief, the kind of belief of amen, are the ones who are going to be living in in a, uh, a, a kind of false reality of the stability of this life instead of the promise of God for his coming. So just take that little word, amen, and ask yourself, do I regularly say amen to the coming of Jesus Christ? That would be a good idea for us, can I say, in your prayer times? Jesus told us to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That suggests that you and I should be regularly saying amen in our prayer times to the imminent return of Christ. Yes, Jesus, remind me of this again, that you're coming again. Yes, this is true and faithful. And yes, today I will endeavor to order my day around the fact that you may call me home today. Affirm the coming of Christ with that foundational amen. Secondly, anticipate his coming. Affirm his coming with this amen. Anticipate his coming. Notice what he says immediately next. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now, notice that that little phrase, even so. What does that mean? Even so, just like you said. So in other words, it's not just affirming that Jesus is coming. It is saying, yes, let it be quick. Even so, just as you promised, may it be done. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And I want to start, first of all, with the desire that this is revealing. The desire that this is revealing. We anticipate his coming by desiring it. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I want us to see that throughout the New Testament, God anticipates that his people are going to be desiring the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would go so far as to say this is a characteristic of those who are born again. A characteristic of those who are born again. You say, well, what biblical basis do you have for that? Hebrews 9.28. You can turn with me to it right now. You can jot it down perhaps as a cross-reference in your Bible, Hebrews 9, 28. The author of Hebrews says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That word look for him is the word in the Greek that has the idea of eagerly waiting for someone. In fact, many of our our renderings today have that same idea, eagerly waiting. To look for is to be eagerly awaiting his coming. Now just think about what that verse says. Unto them that eagerly await him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Who is Jesus going to appear to the second time without sin and the salvation? Who is he going to appear to? Those that eagerly wait for him. Now, am I trying to suggest to you that if 
that desire in your heart has slipped or if that longing for him is not characteristic of your life, you must not be saved. No. But I am saying that it is, to, it is intended to be a characteristic of a Christian because Hebrews 9 says very clearly that those who Jesus is returning for are those who are eagerly waiting for him. That same word that we is translated here, look for or eagerly wait, that same word is, is used in Philippians 3.20. You can jot down another cross-reference or turn there with us. Philippians 3.20. Paul says, for our conversation is in heaven. And that word conversation probably is better translated citizenship. That's the idea. Our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for. Again, what's that word? Eagerly await. We eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, look at the picture. My citizenship is in heaven if I'm a child of God because that's ultimately my home. That's what I'm looking to get to. And Philippians 3 says, we, those of us whose citizenship is in heaven, we are those who eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for his coming from heaven. Okay, so this idea of eagerly awaiting is a kind of characteristic of the child of God. Titus 2.11, again, another cross-reference that you can write down or turn to. Titus 2, verses 11 through 13. Listen to what Paul says to Titus. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. So great, God's grace brings salvation. It has appeared to everyone and it teaches us, it is teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now listen to this. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The glorious appearing. What is the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us? It teaches us to be denying ungodly lust and what else? Looking for him from heaven. That's what God's grace that brings salvation teaches you and me to be eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. Now what does it mean to be eagerly waiting? Think of the word eager. You're eager for something. I have an example of it for you. We had a pretty good example of this recently. Jed and, uh, was going to uh, exercise the role of a really wonderful uncle and spend a Saturday morning with Lars and with Sam. And these boys were beside themselves with anticipation. Jed does walk on water. Uh, to them, uh, and, uh, and this was just about the coolest thing in the world. They, they, they literally couldn't wait. And here we made a, a phenomenal mistake. Jed did. Jed, you're, you're accountable for this in the future. Jed told them that he was going to get there and pick them up really early on Saturday morning. It was like 8.30, so it wasn't like really early, but he pumped them up. You gotta be ready. It's gonna be early. And guess how much Lars slept on Friday night? He defined that word eager. In fact, Tabitha got up at about four in the morning to feed Emma, who was stirring and was crying. She said Lars beat her there. Lars was just out of bed for, hey, mom. <laughs> uh, 
finally, I kid you not, he went down and just tried to sleep on the couch right outside the door to make sure he wouldn't miss Jed. And then he came up to our room at about 8.35 and was just almost breathless because, you know, he's got the watch now so we can see what time. Oh, 8.35, I just woke up. I'm so glad Jed isn't here yet. It's like, no, he, he, he'll let us know. He'll, we'll be fine. We're not going to miss this one. What is that? That's a seven-year-old boy who is eagerly awaiting something. Now, that gives us a little picture what it is for the Christian to be eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. I can't wait. Is, is it going to be today? Is it going to be tomorrow or next week? I am eager for this. Now, again, notice scripture in our New Testament is suggesting that should be characteristic of all of us. All of us should have that kind of anticipation to say, I can't wait for when Jesus returns. Romans 8, we studied this a little bit ago in this series, talks about all of creation groaning for the revelation of the sons of God. And then scripture says, we also, which have the first fruits of the spirit, what do we do? We groan too, waiting for the, re for the redemption of our body. We're waiting. We are eagerly anticipating it. Now, why do you think that scripture assumes that God's people are going to be eagerly awaiting his coming? I think what's going on here is scripture is connecting our salvation and is indeed assuming that will we will be underlying our action is the motive of love. Think about what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 at the very end of his life. He says, I have fought a good fight. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which God, the righteous judge, shall give unto me, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. In context, I don't think Paul is talking about a special reward that he's going to receive. I don't think that's the context. That, oh, some people are going to get a crown of righteousness and some people are not. I don't think so. I think what Paul is saying is his, his earnest longing for Christ, his love for his appearing was what enabled him to finish his race, to keep the faith, to fight the good fight. And that Jesus has a crown of righteousness for all those who love his appearing. We love his appearing because we love him and therefore we long for him. Did you hear those words from Anne Cousin that we sang tonight in that last verse? The bride eyes not her garment. She's not focused on what she's wearing down the aisle. But her dear bridegroom's face, I will not gaze at glory but on my king of grace, not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand, the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. That is one who knows, who loves, who longs for the appearing of Jesus Christ when all will be made right and the bride will finally be reunited eternally with the bridegroom. 
Listen to what Spurgeon says. I think there's so much truth in this. He says, I believe that our relationship to the second advent of Christ may be used as a thermometer with which to tell the degree of our spiritual heat. Okay, have a picture of a thermometer in your mind. And this is the test. If we have strong desires, longing desires, burning desires for the coming of the Lord, we may hope that it is well with us. How would I do on that thermometer test? How would you do? If I have strong desire, longing desires, burning desires, strong desires for the coming of the Lord, we may hope that it is well with us. But if we have no such desires, I think at best we must be somewhat careless. Perhaps to take the worst view of our case, we are sadly declining in grace. Take that temperature. Take your temperature this evening. What is the reading that it comes back with. Notice the desire, even so come Lord Jesus. But I don't want it just for us to focus on the desire that this is reflecting for us. I want to note the expression of that desire. There's desire and then there's the expression of the desire. Yes, Lord, come. It's the old joke about husbands, right? The wife says, why don't you ever tell me you love me. And the husband says, I told you we, I loved you when I got married. And if it ever changes, I'll let you know. Right? A wife says, no. No. Why? Because there is something powerful about when we have love for another person. Not just to feel that love inside us, but to what? Express it by saying, I love you. And notice here that John is coaching us, he's training us, he's encouraging us not just to harbor love for Jesus and his return in our hearts, but to express it to him. I said this recently, my father taught us at this church and he learned it uh, from his old pastor at Harvard Law School uh, when he was there to regularly express love to, to, to God in our prayer times and to do it by the person of the Trinity, regularly express our love to God the Father for what God the Father means to us, regularly express our love to God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ for what he has done and meant for us, regularly express our love to God the Spirit for his special work and grace in our lives. In fact, just back a few verses in this chapter, we see in verse 17, after Jesus has identified himself as the bright and morning star, that the spirit and the bride say, come. And we noted this morning that's ambiguous. It could be a message of come to others and say, come to Jesus. But it may also just be looking up at Jesus, the bright and morning star and saying, come. The spirit and the bride. That means the spirit is operating in our hearts to produce speech, right? If the spirit is saying, come, who is the spirit speaking through? Us. So you and I are being stirred by the spirit if we are sensitive to him to express our love and affection to Jesus Christ. Do you know how often this is the case in our hymns that we sing? My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine for thee all the follies of sin I resign. 
My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus tis now. How many times have you been stirred by expressing your affection to Jesus Christ in song? More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Nearer, my God, to thee nearer to thee, even though it be a cross that lifteth me, still all my song shall be nearer, my God, to thee. Oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm and heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. How often is our hymnody simple expressions of affection and love to Jesus? You see, there's a big problem in our public worship as well as our private worship when we feel like we can't express affection to Jesus lest, lest I don't know, it's embarrassing. Now, you have probably all known the concept of PDA, public displays of affection. We've all been around people who go way overboard on public displays of affection. We say, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. You're madly and passionately in love with each other. But there's another kind of person. Any public display of affection is just too embarrassing for them. And frankly, that can be sometimes just a fear of man that we say, you know, my fear of man of being seen as weird is just too much to... Uh, to allow for any affection. I wonder too, for us, don't get me wrong, there can be a public display of affection toward Christ that can be distracting and inappropriate. But there's also a kind of, of um, I think, a fear of man or, or a, um, an embarrassment that sometimes hinders us inappropriately from expressing affection to Jesus Christ. And we should watch for that. And we should never have the kind of church where when someone is expressing affection publicly to Jesus Christ, it's kind of a, a sneer or a kind of, oh, that's, that's really strange or off. Because as I've said, we must grow in expressing our affection to Jesus Christ. We can't read the Psalms without seeing David's passionate longing and affection being expressed toward God. We can't go through our hymn books without seeing godly men and women pouring out their heart in affection to God. And so should we. Now, what ultimately is underlying, again, not only the desire that we feel, but the expression of it. It is love. It is love. Now, it's interesting that the Song of Solomon ends with a really beautiful verse. The Song of Solomon has been so misunderstood because we've only tried to make it an allegory. We're so uncomfortable with some of what is in there that we say, this just must be about the relationship between Christ and his church. And it's not. It's intended to show us what healthy love in our relationships looks like. By the way, let me just say as an aside, husbands and wives, I would encourage you, urge you, not only to cultivate your desire towards your spouse, but regularly to express it. That may seem very uncomfortable for some of us. It may seem that it, it is out of place. I would just get in the habit of regularly and consistently, daily expressing your affection to one another. I love you. Praising your spouse. 
Now, again, not all of us are the same extent of words of affirmation as others are. It doesn't need to look like anyone else. But I'm just saying Song of Solomon suggests that there's a place in our marriages for that kind of expression of affection and desire and love for one another. And listen to how Song of Solomon ends, chapter 8 and verse 14. Make haste, my beloved, and be thou like to a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. The idea is, my my beloved is separated from me and my response of affectionate love to my beloved is make haste and come back. I want to be united to you. And now is it any wonder that at the end of Revelation when we have been filled with this imagery of a bride and a bridegroom awaiting marriage forever in heaven that when the bridegroom says I'm coming quickly that the bride responds as this beloved in Song of Solomon, make haste, hurry up. I can't wait until you get here. I miss you. My affectionate love is directed to you. How are you doing not just in affirming the coming of Jesus Christ by regular amens to it? How are you doing in your anticipation for the coming of Christ, stoking a desire in your heart to see him, even and particularly if it might be tonight. And then letting that expression of your love and affection toward him in asking him, pleading with him for his quick return. How are we doing on that test? Is that our response to Christ's imminent return? One more thing. Not just affirming his coming, not just anticipating his coming, but finally awaiting his coming. Awaiting his coming. You say, where do you get this? Verse 20, even so come Lord Jesus. And then notice a verse we sometimes tend to just leap over. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You say, well, that's just the ending. That's just the conclusion. That, that doesn't have anything to do with this, does it? I think you're wrong. Again, I want you to think about who this, this, this book was written to. It was written to the churches of Asia Minor. Seven churches that had all kinds of problems going on. And this book was designed to point ahead to them what was coming in the future. But friends, all of them are dead. They died 1,900 years ago. And they never experienced Christ's quick coming. In other words, John was expressing for them a longing that was never experienced by them. Even so, come Lord Jesus, and Jesus didn't come. And you indeed yourself in your life, as you long for the coming of Jesus Christ, as you long for his return and to be united with him, you may not see it in your lifetime. It may be, uh, in a sense, an unresolved longing or desire for the rest of your life. So then what? What I love about this is this benediction is what is your security in the meantime. You and I eagerly wait for Jesus. We long for him. Is our longing futile? No, it's not. Because the Bible ends assuring his people that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with us all forever. Amen. And we need to recognize something that's beautiful. 
Do you know what the last word of the entire Old Testament is? What's the last word of the Old Testament? Would would one of you pull out Malachi? Malachi chapter 4. I want someone to find for me in a, hey, it's like we're doing a sword drill, everyone. I won't make you stand up like my dad had his Bible study students stand up when they got it. Who's got it? All right, Dave, what's the last word of the Old Testament? The last word of the Old Testament tells us this warning from God that when Elijah comes, he intends to turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the world with a curse. How does the New Testament end? With a blessing of grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, what is that saying to us? It's saying that something that Jesus has come to do for us assures his grace in our lives. I loved it this morning. I talked with our brother Mark Holder after service, and we were talking about the sobering warnings of Revelation 22, when Jesus says, blessed are they that do his commandments, because the character of those people who are without are in these ways. We talked about what that meant this morning about the teaching of our New Testament, that God expects that his work in our hearts will make a difference in the way we live. And Mark said to me, he said, you know, but we don't have to worry about that. He wasn't meaning we don't have to be sober. But what he said is, because if we're his, God's going to let us know. He's going to tell us. And I thought, how true is that? How many times have you been walking off the path and God got your attention? He let you know. Why? Because the father who loves his child, scripture tells us, chastens him and disciplines him and brings him back to the right path. We sing that song, he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so he will hold me fast. What is the benediction of grace to all of God's people that through all the warnings, through all the need for sobriety and a careful watching and waiting for Jesus Christ, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with us all. Amen. And this is the glory of our New Testament that we see these warnings for faithful walking with Jesus Christ, tempered with the greatest assurances of grace. Listen to Jude 1. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. What's he saying? You're looking for the mercy of Jesus Christ, while in the present you're keeping yourself in the love of God. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 5 if you want to jot it down again as a cross-reference. Paul says, he prays, and the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting 
for Christ. What is our anticipation? Eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. What is our awaiting? Staying in the love of God. Staying in the grace of God by keeping and focusing on what he has commanded us to do and the power of the Holy Spirit that he has given to do exactly that. One last promise in all the Bible. I am coming quickly. And what John is telling us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is what that means, our response to that promise is to affirm it by regularly saying amen to it in our daily lives and in our daily worship. To anticipate it by stoking the longings of our heart for it and expressing it verbally in our prayer closets and publicly. And then to await his coming by relying not on our own human efforts, not on our own abilities, but recognizing that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with us and keeping ourselves in the love of God by doing what he has said and keeping in tune with his Holy Spirit. Friends, this has been a wonderful study on the eternal state. For me, it has done a work in sparking my own heart in a greater longing for that day when Jesus returns. I hope it has been for you, and I hope that as we move on, we will keep these simple responses to all of this truth that we have heard by affirming that truth, by anticipating it with all our hearts, and then patiently waiting for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us this response, a response really of the Spirit of God within us, to the promise of Christ's imminent return. Father, would you bring our hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ? Let's pause and allow the Spirit of God to speak to us this evening. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. May that be the call of each of our hearts tonight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.